In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the room, be with us. Help us to make all the connections you want us to make. Work through each of us, speak through us, ask our questions. Help us to grow in our relationship with you and to achieve that peace and those gifts you want us to have. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So, starting with the Bible again, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And this will serve as an outline for this evening as well. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I thought I'd take the three points from this being the cloud of witnesses, the saints. We'll talk just a little bit about them as we're turning our attention to union with God and holiness. Perseverance and looking to Jesus. We're going to finish off uh, the humble confidence that we talked about and the final two uh, attributes of the humble confidence, which are uh, a persevering confidence and a simple confidence. And then I'm going to use the throne of God there as a, just a segue into union with God. So it's in the fullness and the time to come, but of course it begins here below. And what can we expect from that? And what should we uh, look forward for that? So that's our outline for this evening. And the cloud of witnesses takes me to what was originally my favorite passage of Marmion. I'm on page 126 of The Grace of Nothingness. Um, when we celebrate the Feast of All Saints, we ought to repeat to ourselves the words St. Augustine heard. Why cannot you do what those did? What motives have you for not aiming at holiness? Oh, I know very well what each of you is tempted to say. I have such and such a difficulty. There is such and such an obstacle standing in my way. I would never be able to become a saint. But be assured that all the saints have met with such a difficulty or found such an obstacle standing in their way and much bigger ones still than yours. So therefore, no one can say, holiness is not for me. What is it that can make it impossible? God desires it for us. He wants us to be holy for his glory and for our joy. This is the will of God, your sanctification. God isn't making fun of us. When our Lord says to us, be perfect, he knows what he is asking of us. And he does not demand anything that is beyond our power when we lean upon his grace. One who claimed to arrive at perfection through his own strength would be committing the sin of Lucifer, who said, I will raise myself up. I will place my throne in heaven. I will be like the Most High. 
Satan was struck down and hurled into the abyss. As for us, what shall we say? What shall we do? We nourish the same ambition as this prideful angel. We wish to reach the objective at, aimed at by this proud one. But whereas he claimed to attain it for himself, we shall declare that without Christ Jesus, we can do nothing. We shall say that it is with him and through him that we can enter into heaven. O Christ Jesus, I have such faith in you that I believe you are powerful enough to effect this marvel of raising a lowly creature like me, not simply to the hierarchies of angels, but up to God himself. And it is only through you that we can arrive at this divine summit. It's a challenging paragraph by Blessed Columba Marmion. Uh, and he calls to mind some of our chief objections, um, which is like, oh, I just can't do that. This is more than, than I could ever do, which is just plainly true, right? That's the whole point of the thing. But if God wants this for us, if he wants this intimate friendship with us, he's going to provide what's necessary to, to grow in it step by step. And we don't need to take a giant leap. We just have to take, you know, that one baby step at a time. I love that little paragraph there about Lucifer. It's so interesting because it is true, actually. He did want, you know, that union with God, if you kind of think of it that way. He wanted to displace him, so that's a little bit more than that. Um, but how interesting that if we try by self-reliance to get there, it, it is kind of like that same thing, right, isn't it? And I came across this week a wonderful quote by St. Teresa of Avila. I must have read it years ago, but it really hit home for me this week. Um, by the, in the Life by Herself, uh, chapter 19, paragraph 15, she was reflecting on some of her own struggles and how she kind of had some lost time in her pursuit of union with God. Um, but because she was so wonderfully blessed with all this and also so great at describing all this her reflections on her own struggles are wonderful as well and she just has this short line which is essentially self-reliance destroyed me you know so so she's speaking very powerfully right to the same fundamental problem we've been talking about uh, which is that we have to let God do it for us and through us uh, and, and that's fundamentally the only way that we have access to God through all of this anyway. So we left off last time at the last two attributes of uh, a humble confidence in God. And we have a persevering uh, confidence to discuss for a moment. We started this discussion quite a while ago when we talked about the practice of the presence of God and how Marmion said that Christ always beheld the Father and that was where he drew his strength, right, in, in, in beholding the Father. And that's where he drew his strength during his ministry, but also during his difficult times. And that that's where we'll draw our strength in prayer generally, but more specifically in trying to pay attention to the fact that God's already here with us, within us, the kingdom of God's within us we talked about. And drawing strength there, and we talked about putting on Christ, and his, you know, and, and in that sense, 
in St. Paul's phrase, of taking that confidence with the Father and being bold enough to say, be a father to me in this or that that I need you to be a father to me in. Um, but bringing it home here with the persevering confidence, this is what Marmion really recommends as how you keep this up over time. Like for him, this like embrace of the Father, this being in the bosom of the Father, according to John's phrasing, this is where he really thinks the key is to persevering through the difficult times. Um, and, and I want to highlight that, but I, I want to highlight it uh, by way of um, two other saints. One we've already discussed, which is Mother Teresa. And the other one that we're going to use to analyze her thoughts is St. Francis. Now previously we heard a little bit about Mother Teresa and how she said, it is not how much we really have to give, but how empty we are, so that we can receive fully in our life and let him live his life in us. I'm on page 133. Now, she's... She's very open about how she has her struggles, right? We all know that in, in um, Christ Be My Light, she's very open about her struggles. And, and we know that there are crosses in our own lives, not quite like hers, but we need to know how to persevere through the darker moments is, is kind of what we need to think about for just a second. And it's interesting that if you recall what she said to Father Murray, she said, rejoice when you feel your nothingness. And, and I just want to like again analyze that a little bit more deeply now that we've made some progress. And the, the thing I'm going to come at it by is St. Francis of Assisi's Sermon of Perfect Joy. It's one of my absolute favorite pieces of spiritual writing out there. It's fantastic. It's only about three pages long. I'll summarize it very quickly though. It's in the Little Flowers of St. Francis of Assisi. And He's walking with Brother Leo, and they're returning to Assisi, and it's cold, I think it's snowing, and they've been walking for a long time. And he says to Brother Leo, Brother Leo, what is perfect joy? And Brother Leo comes up with all these different answers, right? Well, converting the whole world to Christianity. And St. Francis says, no, no, Brother Leo, that's not perfect joy. He says, well, knowing the Bible perfectly, and God's, God and God's way is perfectly, and St. Francis says, no, Brother Leo, that's not perf perfect joy either. He says, working <coughs> miracles, uh, you know, and he said, no, not that either. He says, raising the dead after four days, and no. Finally, Brother Leo says, okay, so what is perfect joy? And, uh, you know, the setup there is that these are all wonderful, amazing gifts that we would easily associate with perfect joy. Right? As far as like spiritual acquisitions, these are amazing. But uh, St. Francis really wants to say this. Above all the graces and gifts of the Holy Spirit, which Christ gives to his friends, is that of conquering oneself and willingly enduring sufferings, insults, humiliations, and hardships for the love of Christ. We cannot glory in all those other marvelous gifts of God, as they are not ours but God's. As the Apostle says, what have you that you have not received? Francis is here thinking in these same lines. What does it mean to have grace working in one's soul? 
And if, again, if you're working a miracle, that's, that's really God working that miracle in your soul or in, in your life. And it has not much to do with your own growth and holiness. Uh, and so he's reflecting on what is it that he can really offer. And he gets to the depths of the question here. Because what he's saying is there's a real grace in letting Christ relive your life, his life in you. And if he wants to do that, even in the deeper aspects of his life, not just in those wonderful ministerial aspects of his life, but in those deeper aspects of his life, there is actually a grace there. And for some reason, he desired the graces of his own sacrifice and found a reason to persevere in them, too. And during our darker moments, it's worth connecting with whatever his reasons were for persevering. And then we'll also be able to persevere through the lighter, easier moments as well. Now here's Mother Teresa again, just to play the two off on each other. I don't think she reflected on the Sermon of Perfect Joy, but I, I think that there are, very, there are similarities here. In you today, he wants to relive his complete submission to his father. Allow him to do so. Does not matter what you feel, as long as he feels all right in you. Take away your eyes from yourself and rejoice that you have nothing, that you are nothing, that you can do nothing. Give Jesus a big smile each time your nothingness frightens you. Mother Teresa is a little bit more realistic here. She knows it hurts, right? And she's not, she's not trying to sugarcoat this. She, she knows that you may not even much like the experience uh, of a cross when the cross comes. Um, but she still finds a meaning there, right? And she finds a purpose there. And, and, and it helps her to persevere in what she's facing. And this, of course, recalls St. Paul's words in Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. The church has long taught that there is a redemptive meaning to suffering, that in a sense our suffering can serve as a prayer on behalf of other people, and that we can find meaning in persevering through that. doesn't mean seek it. <laughs> it just means when it comes, how do you react to it? And, it? and most especially, I think it means don't allow it to throw you off, right? And react badly to the whole thing. But here we have, you know, yet another person, St. Paul, saying that there is something worthy of rejoicing about in this complexity. And I just want to reflect for just a second there. If our truest purpose in life is to love God and neighbor and to allow Christ to relive his life in us, those more difficult moments offer the greatest opportunities on that very measure, on that very purpose. Offer some of the greatest graces in our life as well offer us some of the greatest connection with God's gifts at those moments, too.
So, I think that gives us a hint of how we are to run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Again, St. Paul, you know, as we started, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. I think that still connects again with Marmion's notion. You've got to keep that practice of presence of God in mind if you're going to get through that moment of difficulty. Um, who for the joy that was set before him, whatever meaning it is that came of why he desired to make it through that cross, endured the cross for each of us. So that gives you a hint at how to persevere through the more difficult moments uh, because, frankly, we all need a little bit of help at those darker moments. Turning our attention now to the better stuff, we're on to the simple confidence in God. And, and this is more just a housekeeping category for me, just to let you know. I'm just kind of like making sure that we check all the boxes for a second. Marmion offered a very straightforward, simple explanation of, of, the, of the spiritual life. He has a lot of other things to say beyond what I put in the book. Um, but this, this, this notion on focusing on a humble confidence in God was something he thought was very applicable and very helpful through a lot of things. And we've talked a lot of reasons about why that's the case. But that doesn't exclude other ways of, of spirituality or excludes seeking for information elsewhere in other saints and other, in other forms. Um, but what it does remind you is that if you get stuck somewhere else, you can come back to the humble confidence and make your progress again through that. Just as we said in asceticism, sometimes through too much self-reliance, we can get all off, off of God's program through excessive asceticism or defective asceticism. So too, in, in focusing too much on, you know, where am I in the three conversions and the three ways? Where am I on, on, on St. Teresa of Avila's seven mansions? We can get stuck there. And the, the humble confidence is, is, again, this reminder of, if you're stuck, you know, don't let that drag you down. If there's something particular there that's helping you at that moment, that's great. Go use it. Right? This isn't, again, excluding anything in, in any way. So, a simple confidence in God. Now we're turning to union with God and what to understand of the great fruits of all that we've discussed so far. And again, there's a proviso here at the start. Union with God is not visions. So, so in spiritual life, in the spiritual theology, just like miracles we put into the extraordinary realm, they're graces, they're gifts of God, they're wonderful, but extraordinary, so too we place visions in the extraordinary of the spiritual life. It is not the goal, it is not the reward of the spiritual life. And it's just, again, remembering that, right, in case we get confused about what would we expect to, to experience in the spiritual life. And Marmion's pretty sober on, on that. He hasn't much to say. He, he essentially says he didn't think he had any visions of his own, 
Uh, here's his quote, during my sojourn here, our Lord has united himself much to me, um, but in simple faith. Now, it's, it's an interesting combination right there. He's very confident that God's united himself much to him, um, but he highlights in simple faith, not in extraordinary graces. Um, and here's a, a, another quote from him on the matter. I experience powerful graces and great lights in the depths of my soul. It seems to me not only that Christ dwells in me, but that I am, as it were, buried in him, spiritually surrounded by his sacred presence. I adore him in response to the Father who reveals his divinity to me, and I do so tranquilly, without effort, and more and more as a matter of habit. From this springs a great faith and unlimited confidence in the goodness of the Heavenly Father in spite of the constant realization which he gives me of my wretchedness, of my faults, and of my unworthiness. Again, just to emphasize this notion on visions is some people may think, but, but maybe like this all allows me to, to receive them more fully as a reward. The, the real proper attitude is to say that you're unworthy of them anyway. And frankly, it's so much easier to discern true ones if that's your disposition, right? It's so much harder if you're pushing for them. Then you really never quite know whether it's just you projecting the whole thing. Um, so Marmion here has a, is an interesting phrase uh, of being buried in Christ. So we remember him no, this notion that we cooperate in all Christ's mysteries. Um, and so we're thinking of the rosary, or we're thinking of the stations of the cross here. He thinks that in his prayer, somehow he associates with us being buried with Christ. And he sees it as powerful grace. Gr powerful grace is great lights. Why would you use such a phrase? It's interesting. A as far as this existence goes, being buried with Christ means giving up the senses, in a sense, or uh, at least at one level. And this seems to hint at that more classic definition of what union with God can entail. So on one level in prayer, uh, the theologians tend to say that it's, it's infused contemplation, which is the great depths of prayer that is available by virtue of the grace that's been given to a person at baptism. And again, we talked a little bit about how at the, right before the Second Vatican Council, there was a debate about that, and Garrigou Lagrange helped that debate in saying that it was part of the natural growth of grace to, to experience that, and that's why the debate ended at the Second Vatican Council with the universal call to holiness. I know that term is new for a lot of people. I know it's a, a strange term for a lot of people. I, I just have two quick quotes uh, from Marmion on the topic, very short. And then we're going to turn to the other side of union with God, which is the gifts of the Spirit and, and that experience. So, on infused contemplation. Indeed, in the measure wherein a soul is stripped of itself, God acts more and more within it. He draws to himself the faculties of the soul that he may simplify their exercise. Prayer becomes more simple. The direct action of God is made deeper and the soul is motionless before God. It is intimately united to him by an act of loving adherence. Yet 
while this act is enveloped with the shadow of faith, the soul puts aside all the senses, the natural intelligence even revealed truths, say of God, it rests in pure faith. And then here he says one more of his uh, brief discussions of contemplation. What ought a soul to do? To give itself up, to let itself be taken. God touches the soul. He seizes its every fiber to make them all converge to himself as to their center. It is a divine embrace in which the soul, despite aridity or darkness or its own powerlessness, has nothing to do but yield itself up to the divine artist's transforming hand. Earlier we talked about meditation being painting the picture and contemplation being sitting back and looking at the painting. Earlier we talked about just it's great to do your, your Lexio Divina, to listen to the Word of God, but sometimes it's time to just set back and <coughs> just be with God, even without really words. We talked about having a coffee with God and not always actively talking at Him. Those are kind of preparatory ideas that lead more towards this notion of sometimes God just wants you to just settle down with Him. And the way that the, the saints explain this is they'll say that he'll even draw to himself your memory, your will, your intellect, and you'll just kind of be there uh, in a state of peace with him for a little bit. Um, and that's generally this category of higher, supernaturally infused contemplation. This isn't just p looking at the picture you've just painted. This isn't just having a coffee with God, like a quiet... Uh, spouse if you'd across the, the, the breakfast table. This is much more like a real just being touched by God in a way that you cannot provoke. But if it happens, embrace it. That's, that's kind of the advice that the saints give. And can it happen for everyone? The church has kind of said, yes, this is kind of something that's worthy of pursuing. So it's worthy taking some time to just sit with God and let God do what he's going to do as well as you know, be there thinking about his presence and thinking about the scripture and letting it speak to you through the Holy Spirit's interpretation. Just spend time with him, too. This, again, is a relationship that is ordered towards deeper intimacy. This is a relationship like grace and the gifts of the Spirit are always ordered towards that deeper life uh, of, of friendship with God. So just talking about how some of the people have experienced that. There are mistakes in that regard as well. So one of the mistakes is for people to say like that they live in a void or that their prayer is just to be in a, you know, voided. The, this prayer is very much focused on God and trying to seek God with your heart, with your will. Um, I mean, real quick, the old explanation is, is um, for some of these prayers is that everything we say about God, like let's call them all powerful for a second, everything we say about God is constricted by our language. So what we don't really mean is he's not like the source of all power, or the Big Bang, the source of the universe's power. What we really mean is he's not that. And what we really mean is he's more than that. So our notion of power 
is only an analogy of what his notion of power is. And so that's the old kind of theological, the via positiva, as you could say perfectly well, God is powerful, via negativa, but yet that fails as an analogy in some sort, via eminencia, God's power is beyond what our language can say about power. In the spiritual life, there's that connection where people said, well, thinking about God is wonderful. It's like the via positiva. Cataphatic prayer is the very technical term. Uh, but some people say, but you can go even deeper just letting the will seek God in the darkness. Uh, and, and that's the cataphatic, or uh, the apophatic prayer, if you really want to get into that. Uh, those are very technical terms. But just to give some people some terms to look at, if you were so inclined. The mistake, again, is some people say, I just want to live in a void, and that's not the way to prepare yourself for union with God. This is, as St. Teresa says, it's always a conversation. It's always a friendship. It's always ordered towards God. Um, and nor does this mean that our life is without blessing, that, that void in that sense. You know, we've talked deeply about how um, our life is one that has the dignity of being a child of God. That good father is the one who's in charge of it. And as Neil Lozano is really good about, and there's a path of blessing towards, towards him that he has planned for each of us. And it's unique for each person. So, again, if we're going to God with empty hands, we're going expected to be filled. We're not just expecting to be uh, passionless. That's an old term, but it's, it's, it's not just being a leaf flown in the air, but was another term for quietism. I'm just kind of eliminating some mistakes here and naming them very quickly, I know, but, but these are some mistakes that people make. Now, we're to the best part. Marmion on union with God, and this is more or less his rephrasing of the gifts of the Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, which are, uh, or the fruits of the Holy Spirit, which come when the gifts are flowing deeply into a person's life. The traditional teaching is always that these gifts flow more and more easily and fully as one allows God more deeply into one's life. And here's his description. I'm on page 152. God acts towards us as we act towards him. God, as it were, measures his providence according to our attitude in relation to him. And the more we give ourselves to him, the more we look upon him as our father, as the spouse of our souls, the more his providence enters into the least details and circumstances of our life. For a soul totally surrendered to him God has ineffable delicacies which show that his gaze is ever fixed upon it. Never has mother cared for her child, never has friend gladdened his friend, as God cares for and gladdens the soul. This soul is perfectly free and detached from self and from creatures. It is captive of nothing whatsoever, neither of an employment nor of a charge. It seeks and desires God, and when it has found him, its every desire is fulfilled. God is the sovereign master of this soul. Nothing in it disputes the sovereignty. 
It procures him incomparable glory by the continual homage of utter self-surrender. The Lord works great things through it, and its life has the most wonderful repercussion in the spiritual world. The liberty possessed by souls thus given to God brings them great peace and deep joy. They know that God is a Father full of goodness, that He loves them and wills to bring them to Himself. What have they to fear? God guides them. Nothing is wanting to them, neither light nor grace. Dominus regit me et nihil mihi deret. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. They live in the abundance of divine gifts and in an inward peace passing all understanding. I want to reflect for just a moment on that captive of nothing whatsoever. That wonderful interior freedom of allowing God to just live his life however it is he wants in our lives. That, what he calls that deep, utter surrender, which puts no other purpose ahead of God, and which allows one to rejoice in all that God's doing, and everyone else around, around yourself as well as in yourself. And that follows that path of blessing that he has marked out for you. It's a representation of St. John's, and also St. Benedict follows this tradition, of the perfect love of God that casts out fear. That in this most intimate union with God, we find in God the security that we need, the mercy that we need, and the ability to again live as a monument of his mercy for others. I want just for a second to return to St. Therese, because she's got a brief little thing that's wonderful on this topic. All creatures can bow towards her, admire her, and shout praises upon her. I don't know why this is, but none of this could add one single drop of false joy to the true joy she experiences in her heart. Here she sees herself as she really is in God's eyes, a poor little thing, nothing at all. She's not captivated uh, by the praise of others, great though it is, good though it is. She's only really focused upon her relationship with God and God's intense care for her. And I, I have a little analogy here, thinking of her as an artist at an art show of her own. The artist wins the admiration of the greatest connoisseurs and aesthetes, receives the acceptance of the gift by their family and friends, and knows that she has brought the inspiration to fruitful completion. But what the artist knows best of all is that the divine grandmaster artist has always been at work in her. And that is what counts. So with this little focus on humble confidence in God, of allowing God to guide us through his providence, through his ways, into a deeper relationship with him, one that finds greater inner, inner freedom, 
greater peace and poise, and ultimately, according to Marmion's words, one in which God will care for and gladden you in such a way that never has mother cared for her child, never has friend gladdened his friend. So, with that, I'll attempt to ask, answer questions on some of the hardest things to possibly answer questions on. Yes. So, we have a neighbor who has extreme sensitivity to noise and is extremely cranky and, and very disagreeable um, uh, and acting out a lot. Um, how would I respond to that? Well, um, you mean like moving, or, or is that <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, let's see, well, I mean, your, your options in that, in that circumstance are, are very limited. Um, you can try your best to have some mercy on him and, and to connect a little bit more with him to maybe help in that sense. So caregiving is a lot of work, and it's, it's um, hectic as well, how to overcome self-reliance in that. Um, I mean, I, I think that just at least when you, when you do kind of think of it, a little prayer of come Holy Spirit help, you know, always is helpful throughout the day. And, and you know, if that happens a little bit more occasionally, it does kind of start to build up that awareness of God's help and, and, and seeking it. Um, yeah, being a caregiver may not be too dissimilar to being a cook in a kitchen if it's really hectic for a lot of people. So again, there's that maybe that moment where you can lean on the practice of the presence of God for just a second while you're doing one of those tasks that don't require as much detailed attention. Or you can look to see the see incarnational spirituality, see Christ in the person you're serving and just try to, you know, the distressing, distressing disguise of the poor, as Mother Teresa says, see Christ there, and that those are those are some of the options that initially come to mind. How to safely um, seek greater gifts? Is that a decent summary? Um, so, I think the main, the basis there is that all these things are good, right? That that you were discussing. So again, we take Lent as an example. Um, maybe our phones are good, but maybe three hours of them isn't good, right? So maybe there's a moment where you could say, I think maybe I should set my phone down. I don't really need to look at the next funny video. I maybe could go call a friend. So that's a slightly greater good than looking at a video, right? Um, maybe three hours of talking to friends is a bit of excessive at some point, so okay, I've had a good conversation with my friend, I've, friends, I've connected well, but maybe I need to spend a little bit of time in prayer. You know, so um, I think there is a hierarchy of goods in that sense. Uh, and we want to use all of them in a good balance so that, so that whatever's helpful, the mix that's helpful for each of us, right? Um, but I think sometimes, especially if we're really attached to a lower one, and we all, are, it's Lent, so like, let's call that chocolate for a second, 
you know, if chocolate's getting in the way of actually praying, because, like, every time I have a bad few moments, I go for the chocolate rather than maybe just settling down with God for a few minutes, then it's getting in the way of something, or you're becoming excessively attached. Um, so it's, the asceticism's always about growing in charity, growing in humility, but with whatever that purification of excessive attachment is that would help just free a person to really do what they want to do. How do we go to God with open hands in a humble way, but without really um, saying, gimme, gimme to God? Um, I guess patience is an aspect of that. And, uh, I mean, part of what I keep trying to say is don't just try to give him things, right? That's the great distraction in that regard. Um, But... I think going empty-handed, there is this notion of surrender there, too. Like, in your time, the way you want to give, I'm looking to you, the good giver. Right? And and there's, (laughs) if I'm empty-handed, I can't really uh, negotiate too well, either. (laughs) So (laughs) there's that, you know, if you think going empty-handed is a great negotiation tactic... (laughs) You know, you got to do remember the emptiness of that part, you know. But if you're just focusing on the giver and trusting the giver, then it's in the giver's time and in the giver's way. Okay, so Timothy Radcliffe, the master of the Dominican order, uh, spoke to Benedictine abbots, and he used this wonderful image of the... um, Ark of the Covenant has this empty spot uh, of the mercy seat where God sits. It's, it doesn't have a figure in it, right? It's empty because they don't want to portray God. Um, and it's another kind of image, right, for these empty hands. It's this, like, the emptiness represents God, right? And, and he was reflecting to the Benedictines that unlike the Dominicans who are constantly working, he sees in the Benedictines this emptiness, but which speaks to him of God's presence among them, right, or within them. Which I think speaks to our, our dignity of who we are, not what we do. And I think he was very, in a very focused way saying, everyone around you defines themselves by what they do. We need at least a few people to remind us that our deepest identity and our deepest dignity is who we are as children of God. And, and he, I think he was also kind of hinting, and I see you, Benedictine, slipping into the same thing as everyone else, right? <laughs> and, you're, and you have this role to do that part, and if we lose that in you, we don't have a lot of people reclaiming it, right? You know, so... How then does that connect, your questions is, how does that connect to uh, Marmion practicing the presence of God? Um, I suppose, in a sense of that great aridity, you know, when it doesn't feel like God's present, um, it could be that moment when you are in a sense, still showing God's glory to others, even in that emptiness. That emptiness may be allowing that grace to be more evident elsewhere. You know, that's kind of that old way of looking at some of that aridity uh, in some of the saints, that 
while they felt, while Mother Teresa felt empty, she was, you know, a shining light to the whole world. Um, and in that sense, you can't always judge it by your feelings, that old notion, or, or even by your own experience, that there could be very deep graces at play right there. Um, and Steve, you were talking about Ruth Burroughs, because you bought the Ruth Burroughs book in between. I'll call you out on that. Um, she's really great, and because she has a phrase there that says, um, there are two types of mystics. And she said there are lights-on mystics and lights-off mystics. And this applies especially to infused contemplation. She says that um, Teresa of Avila was a lights-on mystic. She knew it was happening, and she was given the great grace of describing it. Right? So she could really say, and she says there are people who just know what God's doing in their own lives and other people's lives, and they're able to just explain it all. That's a real gift. But she says that a lot of people are lights-off mystics. And she would put St. Therese in that category. Um, and I think you would probably put Marmion more in that category, too, based on some of what he's saying. Um, that, that doesn't mean that it's not happening. It just means that they're not always as personally aware of it, and they're not able to describe it as deeply as the other. But that doesn't mean it's not a grace and not a gift. And that's, again, why you don't get caught up in trying to judge everything by your experience, you stick with the simple confidence, the humble confidence. Um, and maybe you look more for those gifts of the Spirit at work in your life or the, you know, the fruits of your Spirit, that peace, that inner peace at work in your life. I think we'll end on that one. So thank you guys for persevering. And um, I do, just in a minute, have a, a, a request of a few people, but for the moment we'll say a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill our lives. We've tried to open ourselves more to you during this course, and we look forward to all the blessings you want to do in our lives. Help us with our next steps in prayer. Help us with our next steps in serving you and, and others. And... Uh, just fill our days with your presence. Fill us with your grace. We are nothing without you, and we really hope for you to do all this through us for the rest of our lives. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.